0: of Imaginaries in Swedish Green Transport, Episode 20. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. I'm your host, Michael Label. On this episode, we are speaking with Amelia Mutter, a researcher at the Division of Environmental Communications at the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences. The reason to have Amelia on was to discuss her research comparing biogas and electric transport options in Sweden. As you'll hear, we have a great discussion and a real delve into the following topics. How and why did she do a PhD on imaginaries on biogas and electric vehicles in Sweden? For those not familiar with the concept of imaginaries, don't turn off yet, the application of imaginaries can help you understand how technology is accepted or rejected by people and policymakers. Are goals for 2030 really attainable in just a few more years? Will we have the transport infrastructure and deploy technologies to meet our goals? That's a question we discuss. We also discussed the interesting and dynamic network of resources and outputs that a biogas facility provides. This is actually really interesting. And also why technology lock-in may not be a bad thing when it leads to further innovation. Finally, why is it important to understand the everyday design justifications for our transport modes? We learn about the different needs of long-range buses compared to city buses. The intent of the My Energy 2050 podcast is to spread the knowledge about how the energy system can assist our transition towards a greener future. If you enjoy this episode or any episode, please share it. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make the transition. And now for this week's episode. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. I'm here today with Emilia Mutter, a researcher at the Division of Environmental Communications at the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences. She finished her PhD in March 2020 from, oh, you have to correct me here, at Linköping University. Linköping. (laughs) Linköping. Okay, excellent. I wanted to bring Emilia on to discuss her research on sustainable transport issues, particularly the social perspective she brings to the field of study. Emilia, welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast. Podcast.
1: thanks michael i'm happy to be here
0: great thank you and i um just to correct the pronunciation uh, linkoping no it's no Link- 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 it's Link- like
1: ping. a it's they have a soft k's in swedish sometimes so it's almost like you say it like it's an sh almost like okay, Link- SH. Link- SH.
0: okay. i'm a, studying my my hungarian we should actually maybe uh-huh. discuss the elephant in the room Okay. <laughs> which is you're American and I'm American. Yeah. Uh, but we're um, attending or we're working at different u- European u- uh, universities. I was yeah. wondering, maybe actually I'm going to modify my, some of my first questions and sure. ask about your your European journey and how did you end up uh, where you are today and even your MassPOM connection, which is connected with CEU, my, my host or my main institution.
1: Yeah, Uh, Yeah, so I mean, I guess that it it started when I finished my bachelor's degree. I did my bachelor's degree in in Tennessee in the US and uh, I actually transferred after my freshman year. So I felt like I never really had the opportunity to study abroad. Uh, So I sort of ended up with this, this situation where I couldn't really decide if I wanted to study abroad, or sorry, if I wanted to travel, or if I wanted to do a master's. And then I found the MESPOM program, which seemed like the perfect way to do both. Because uh, for anyone who's not familiar with the MESPOM program, over two years, I got to live in three different European uh, countries, and I got to travel a lot, and I got to meet a bunch of people from, I think my classmates were from 20 different uh, different countries. Um, So that was sort of, that's why I chose MESPOM. Uh, and so I was really a bit of a noob. Like I was a bit of a novice when I moved to Budapest for the first time. Um, and I was just so, just dis- like so stressed out because it was my first time traveling abroad by myself. Um, but it was a great, Budapest is a great place to uh, travel. I mean, we were so close to so many other cities. So I did a lot of traveling with my classmates, studied my second year at Lund University in Sweden um and I wrote my master's there and while I was at Lund I met my partner now my Uh husband so it's one of these kinds of stories (laughs) um but I also mean I I learned to love the Swedish way of life as well um and I think I had never really considered an academic career until I lived in Sweden and I learned to understand how um how at least in my experience as a PhD in, in Swedish academia you're very much treated as a peer and it's 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 like a salaried position and it's Uh, Seems much more stable and less stressful than the American Ph.D. system. Um, So so I decided to stay or I mean, you know, that's the simplified version. I actually moved back and forth quite a bit, (laughs) spent five months in Germany, like tried to get a visa to stay in Sweden. Um, But but once I moved here, I decided that a Ph.D. was the way to go.
0: Yeah, that's great. I And um, maybe a bit more on this American comparison, because, you know, maybe you don't know, maybe not, or just the listeners know, too. Like, uh, yeah, I did a, what was it? In my undergrad, I I did an exchange in Umeå, Sweden. And Mm -hmm. then, um, yeah, I left in 98 America. And then I did a master's in UK at Bristol. And then later on, my PhD there, too. And Mm -hmm. going back to the US to do a PhD, I had an offer. But it seemed a bit fraught, you know, you have to do a lot of teaching and yeah, maybe you have money, maybe not. So maybe you yeah. could talk about like what was appealing to do a PhD in Sweden, besides having this personal connection, which I yeah. absolutely understand as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, cause at least my understanding from my friends who did do a PhD in the U S it's, it's much harder in the way that you piece together your time because often you have to do some kind of teaching um, that that's where you actually get your funding from. So it takes up a, a large amount of your time, uh, and then also often you're employed to sort of work as an assistant of some sort, or to, to help out with your supervisor's research. Uh, so I had friends that it seemed like the last six months of their PhD period was the only time they had to actually like do their research and write their book. Uh, whereas in Sweden, it's, it's, treated quite differently. Like it's, it's a four year guaranteed funding situation. So I had four years where my job uh, of time, where my job was to like take PhD classes, to do all the reading, um, and to do the research and write my book, uh, and then any teaching that I did was like in addition to that time. So I ended up doing uh, about four and a half years together with teaching. I was uh, an assistant at a journal that one of my professors was running, mm-hmm. um, and so those kinds of things sort of add to your time at the end instead of this idea that you're trying to do everything in the the time allotted for your PhD.
0: Yeah. Is it, can you, I don't know. (laughs) I still haven't lived through the shock or I haven't done counseling about my PhD experience Mm -hmm. yet, maybe, but uh, was it, was it almost too much of a focus just on your PhD or how did, how did you deal with that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a, a good question, a good way of asking it because I think, I think I also realized afterwards that, you know, a lot of people had very, uh, complicated relationships with their PhDs because mm-hmm. it was very much for me that it's, it's um, you know, then I sort of had the opposite problem that I had really great, a really great supervisor and a really great co-supervisor, but they weren't doing my project with me. You know, they, they were giving me advice and reading my work, but ultimately, especially the last year and a half or so, I was just sitting often at home alone, uh, you know, trying to write the papers that composed my, my uh, final product. And so if people who have been working at home from the pandemic know how they feel <laughs> yeah. like so uh, isolated, sometimes I think it was like that a bit to the extreme because I, I had very few meetings with my colleagues. Like I met with my supervisors every now and then. But um, yeah, I mean, it is it is very much focused on on your own work and, and it's very Uh, I I realized afterwards after the the fact that I I think I like working with other people a bit better because you have someone to bounce ideas off of and you can come up with this like collective product and that that wasn't really that's not really exactly how my PhD worked.
0: Yes. I, I think maybe we'll we'll leave it there, but I like your yeah. kind of exp- <laughs> cuz there's a lot more but we won't go uh is is simply like for those that have been working from home during the pandemic. That's kind of like what it is doing a PhD, right? Yeah. This this you're you're alone and then you're trying to deal with all this stuff. Uh but it's your piece of, ultimately it's your piece of work. And uh, you have to sort through so many things and learning how to write, learning how to do the research, mm-hmm. and bringing it together. But and that's why I wanted to have you on, and I'm so excited because uh, I I am because I we yeah we have this connection to see you, but I actually mm-hmm. just found your. I, think, I don't know, I was doing a search for like, you know, uh, sustainable transport or EVs and stuff. And that's when I came across your your publications, which actually is coming from your, your PhD uh, or part of it. And that's that's what I would like to talk about. And yeah. so so we can shift it a little bit and um, talk about imaginaries actually. Sure. Um, and because this is part of the basis of your kind of theoretical framework for your, for both the paper and the thesis. And why, why did you, what, what appealed to you? And what are imaginaries in the social science sense of looking at transport?
1: Yeah, so there's, uh, there's sort of two different topics that we can talk about. The first is imaginaries more generally. Um, and so that comes a lot from political science and from this idea that we as a society, we have collective ways of understanding ourselves. Um, so for example, um, there, there's one writer that talks a lot about the, the, the whole idea of nationhood as being imaginary, right? Because like what makes us part of one nation? It's, it's this idea that there's, um, I liked imaginary so much because it's about a lot of this like completely intangible way uh, that we as individuals, but also we as a society understand ourselves um, and understand our values and where we're trying to go. Um, so that's sort of what appealed to me about imaginaries and, and in a way it's, it's a bit, it made, it makes imaginaries very difficult to study because they are so they're ideational, right? Like they exist in people's heads. Um, so how do you go about understanding what an imaginary is? Um, so that was, you know, that was an ongoing problem throughout the thesis or challenged throughout the thesis and, and, um, yeah, but one that I tried to tackle. Uh, so more specifically, I used a theory called socio-technical imaginaries, and basically, socio-technical imaginaries takes this idea of imaginaries more generally and relates it to developments of uh, science and technology. Um, and there's a few factors that make it an imaginary socio-technical imaginary. For example, uh, they're collectively held, they're institutionally stabilized. Um, and socio-technical imaginaries, they talk about the desirable future, right? Um, so that's something that also really appeals to me about imaginaries is that um, is that I think that anyone who works with sustainability issues, it's it's easy to feel a bit fatalistic sometimes because the the challenges are so big, and sometimes it feels like we don't know how we're ever going to overcome them. Uh, but because imaginaries are so much about the future that we imagine, like that we imagine that we hope for, um, there, there's some element of hope always sort of embedded in those imaginaries. Uh, so I think that that's what drew me to them when I started considering different ways of understanding the future. Um. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I chose imaginaries.
0: Can, yeah. Can I expand it into an area that uh, sure. not on your research area, but, but sure. these imaginaries almost a, it's a can be a political context as well, right? Yeah. So, um, what in what way? I'll, I'll leave it up to you. Uh, in what way is it can imaginaries serve a political context?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, I can relate that a little bit to my research anyway. Because uh, imaginaries, right, I, I said they're incidentally stabilized. So imaginaries can come from anywhere, but, um, but they often are greatly influenced by things like political ideals, like the kind of, um, for lack, lack of a better term, propaganda that a government sort of tries to sell you on. So in Sweden, if we want to take my, my case study, which is mostly about sustainable transport in Sweden, there's a lot of dialogue about this idea of being uh, fossil fuel independent by 2030. So that's the kind of thing that they, they discuss a lot. Uh, For example, the prime minister, he'll go out and when he gives a speech, uh, he'll talk a lot about Sweden being the first fossil fuel free welfare state. Right. And so like, that's, that's a very political move because it's even if you're not necessarily interested in, sustainable transport as a subject if you are interested in current events and you listen to the prime minister's speeches you'll hear this kind of rhetoric and it gets in your head and and so then when you start to imagine your own future and you think you know as as most people casually do what is my life going to look like in 10 years you think oh well if we're going to be a fossil fuel free welfare state then I'll probably be driving a non fossil fuel vehicle right yes. so i mean there's there's you know, that's not, that's not something that I'm necessarily the authority to explain, but it's, it, you can understand how these kinds of ideas, they come from different places. And one of the places they come from is from the political realm.
0: And, and, uh, when it comes to EVs, uh, that, future i mean i'm just because i'm in america right now at the moment uh it just seems so prevalent basically with biden but also in the eu and where policy is going where the automotive companies are going and so it's this but there's they have to sell this imaginary future first yeah
1: yeah yeah, absolutely and I, i think you're totally right that it comes from a lot of different places so, for example, in the Swedish context, uh, again, there, there's a lot of emphasis uh, from the po- politicians that electric, electricity is the future. But also uh, in Sweden, we have a couple of major vehicle producers. Uh, namely, we have both Volvo and Scania that produce trucks and buses. Um, and so they're also driven by the fact that, for example, it's like it's a global issue that in, in China, there's a lot of demand. And in California and in London, there's a lot of demand for electric vehicles. So it also drives manufacturers to uh, to change the way that they think about their future and what kind of vehicles they're going to provide. So there's multiple different uh, different like classic car producers, for example. I think GM is one of them yeah. that's come out and said that that they plan to only produce hybrid and electric vehicles, uh, you know, in the next ten or fifteen years. So that has a huge impact also on the imaginary.
0: But does this. I don't know. How do I take this? This is like marketing. It's almost like a marketing strategy or is it, is it, how, how can it actually fuel it? Yeah. Maybe I don't want to say greenwashing because actually maybe I think it's a bit more um, there's greater intent behind it. There's some policy Mm -hmm. changes, but how, how do we differentiate what they, what we're actually doing to, to kind of, build to this imaginary future and what we're, I don't know not doing or something.
1: Yeah, it's hard for me to answer that question, but one one of the things that I think is is maybe a bit what you're trying to get at is the way that this is a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, yes. right that it's um, that if we talk enough about the electrified future, then enough people will buy into the, the electrified future and then we'll have the electrified future, right? Um, so, I mean, I think especially when you're in the situation that we're in now with electric vehicles, that it's coming from a lot of governments, uh, you know, at least like local municipal governments. Um, and it's coming a lot from the manufacturers. So then when we as consumers go out, like I know a lot of people who then when they are in the process of buying a new car, they think much more seriously about buying an electric vehicle because they feel like, and, and, and that's actually something I witnessed a lot with my research is this idea that it's going to be electrified buses in the future, we might as well get on board this train, so we're not left behind in the past.
0: Yeah. And who did you interview for for your research?
1: Uh, I interviewed, so I did, uh, I did sort of what I framed as three different case studies. Yes. Two are municipal case studies. One in the city of Linköping, where my university was based. Um, one in the city of Malmö, which is the third largest city in Sweden in the south. And, um, one that was more of a global case study or not global, sorry, national case study in Sweden. Um, and so I interviewed, uh, people mostly involved with public transport. So the public transport providers. Um, the people running the bus companies, uh, in both of the local case studies, um, some politicians, I interviewed representatives from the two major vehicle manufacturers, uh, both Volvo and Scania. Um, yeah. It's a really good ups- cross section. Yeah. I mean, so it was a, you know, it was, I, I tried to use a bit of like a snowballing situation. So, so asking who I should talk to and, and I got some really interesting suggestions because, um, because I, we've talked a lot about electric vehicles, uh, but a lot of what my thesis was about was actually about the intersection between electric vehicles and biogas, because biogas has a very strong history here in Sweden. So, uh, so it's interesting to see the way that uh, when I started doing the research, I had this idea that I'd interview like biogas actors and I'd interview uh, like electricity actors, but really a lot of those actors are the same people.
0: Uh-huh. Um, and how did they see this trend? Because, yeah, maybe, sorry, maybe we should back up and you can talk about biogas in Sweden because yeah, that, sure. that, that's an established technology resource. Yeah. Uh-huh.
1: yeah. So that was actually, biogas is actually my, um, what do you say, like my entry point into this discussion, right? So my thesis was originally, or my project was originally, it's funded by uh, an organization called the Biogas Research Center, which is this competence center that we had at Linköping University. or it's, It still exists, but I'm no longer researching there. Um, and so biogas has a really interesting history in Sweden because uh, I think it was it, around the 90s, they started uh, investing in a lot of biogas. And I feel like it's necessary to clarify that biogas is different than biofuels. Um, because I think especially, uh, especially American potentially listeners, because we call it gas, there, there's some confusion there. Um, the biogas is generated by anaerobic digestion, so it can be created with any kind of organic material. Um, in Sweden, a lot of times it's made from food waste. So a lot of municipalities, for example, we have it here where I live in Stockholm, they collect food waste. So your apple cores and you know, everything that you normally throw away, and they put it together in an ana- anaerobic digestion facility uh, and create this gaseous fuel that's primarily methane. Um, and so it's an interesting, uh, it creates these interesting sort of like local systems. Um, and so in Linköping, where I did my PhD, they, they sort of have a reputation of being, having a very strong biogas history because uh, they were one of the municipalities that heavily invested in this um, in the 90s, I believe, um, and, and uh, built a lot of these facilities to create their own biogas. Uh, but then also um, through the other arm of the municipality that they also uh, then ran their own bus system, then they can also provide sort of like demand for the biogas that they're generating. Uh-huh. And so they can create this sort of like closed loop system. And there's also a lot of uh, benefits on the side for agriculture. Uh, for example, when you generate biogas, you also have this byproduct of digestate, which is like a um, organic fertilizer. That you can then use in local agricultural production, so uh, that's one of the reasons why I was so excited about getting into this project because I just love the the image of this, uh, you know, nothing goes to waste kind of thing when you're creating fuel from waste. And, um, and is it true? Um, I mean it depends <laughs> on how you I think like a lot of things it depends on how you look at it uh-huh. it's absolutely true that that they use like that they collect municipal waste and like uh, organic waste and that that's a lot of the basis for production it's absolutely true that there are um, there are producers in the region that use the digesting as a fertilizer um, but I mean there's you know it's like all systems; it's complicated.
0: Yes, yeah, and I think you have correct me, um, but in the thesis you talk about they also blend it with natural gas, or is this not in this location? That was that Malmo.
1: Uh, I mean, that's more in Malmo, but it's so. Okay. Uh, so the the resulting product, the biogas, it's it's um, chemically similar to natural gas. So depending on how you ship and store it, a lot of times it's a, it's in a mix with natural gas. Okay. Uh, but that's less so in the case of Linchirping, where they have this local system, uh, and most things are shipped, for example, by truck.
0: Okay. okay. Um,
1: than it is in, in Malmo. Yeah.
0: And and maybe we'll, we'll stick with the Linkurping, um case study. And and Ooh. so and what did you find? So basically, the municipality, the all the different actors are really invested in this this biogas. Mm -hmm. And what was their view about electric vehicles or a transition Mm -hmm. towards that? Were they open to that or not open to that?
1: Yeah, I think that that's what sort of surprised me when I started to, to go out and interview these people is that no one that I interviewed had a like outwardly negative opinion about electric vehicles, right? They all agreed with the overall imaginary that electric vehicles are going to be a big part of the future. But they sort of like reconciled this with their own belief that biogas was essential to the regional production and essential for their like regional health, regional sustainability. Um, So most people then came up with these sort of like alternative imaginaries where they said, okay, like, yeah, electricity is the future of municipal public transport, but maybe just not in Linköping where we we live, where the biogas, where Uh one of my... One of my informants called it the freaking biogas city, uh, which I thought was such a great, uh, yeah, great expression. Um, or other other informants rather thought that okay, like maybe we'll have some electrification, but only if we can find other outlets for our biogas production. So instead of abandoning the idea that electricity was promising, like I kind of expected, most of them rather thought that there was some kind of like middle ground between the electrified future. And the biogas future that they had sort of imagined as of ten years ago. Uh
0: huh. Yeah. And and do you think that was? I mean, a the system's up and running, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, maybe from a the the technology perspective, uh, how how do you see this playing out? Because now they're kind of locked into this technology, and or they're not locked into this technology.
1: They're not locked into the technology. Okay. So, okay. Spoiler alert.
0: No, uh-huh. but
1: um, that. Uh, I mean, I think. I think that they. You know, it was clear that there's a lot of value built around this system, right? And so. Um, so actors there, they felt like if if they're going to use electri- electricity in their buses, they still need the other parts of the biogas system, right? So they need to still need the outlet for their organic waste. They still need the digestate uh, fertilizer for their farmers. So they should just take this like use case scenario and swap it out for something else, um, of course, that's not an easy process. And so I think that for me, that was one of the big takeaways from this project is that transitions are not simple. It's, it's rarely a, a transition from one like one solution to the next. It's rather like, especially when you're talking about sustainable transport, it's such a big, complicated puzzle. Yeah. So it's a lot of this like shifting things around from one place to the next. Um, so, I mean, as I said, spoiler alert, that actually they they do have electric buses in chirping now. Uh, like not in all the bus, uh, not in all the routes, but in some of them. Um, and the municipally owned uh, biogas company called Techniska Werken, uh, one thing that they've invested a lot in recently is liquefaction. Oh. So if you can, if you can take the gaseous fluid of the biogas and you can make it a liquid fuel, uh, flu- a liquid fuel uh, like LNG, except LBG in this case, uh, then there's more use cases because it's easier to transport and to store it. Ah. Um, so that's that's what they're sort of focusing on then. And so then, for example, one application is you can use it in ferries. There's a lot of ferries here in Sweden that you know cross the Baltic Sea, for example. Um, and and you can you can you can put it more easily into the electricity system and, and various different things. So I think that that's sort of the direction that that they're going into. Uh, also, quite a few of the Vehicle manufacturing companies have then uh, put more energy into developing uh, liquefied biogas uh, transport trucks. So there's like it opens up the possibility if you can liquefy the nat- or liquefy the biogas. Yeah. Oh,
0: so cool! So it's like actually a story, and I mean, it's real life of technological evolution. So they're yeah. just developing it more and more to fit other purposes, and yeah, other. So they're not going to be kind of locked out later on.
1: No, I mean, because I think that, um, you know, I think that it's interesting, because if, if we're talking about imaginaries, then all of these imaginaries related to any specific fuel are sort of like, under this umbrella that we're going to have the fossil fuel free vehicle free fleet by 2030, which, by the way, pretty optimistic, but yes. still. Um, and so then, you know, this locally produced biofuel, like, can't go to waste, Right. Yes. So it becomes then instead a story about finding where else that can be used and if electric if electricity is more efficient for municipal bus systems where is the biogas best fitted.
0: Uh-huh. I mean, yeah. but they could, I mean, like the end of the day, if they wanted to, they could just burn it anyways for like district heating or something like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh-huh. It's this that diverse. I actually use in my classes, I, I use a case study about uh, these founders and they have to decide which renewable energy technology to invest in. They end up investing in a biogas facility just because of this, all the inputs that they can get uh, and the outputs that the flexibility on the outputs as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so biogas, I think, is a really interesting technology. So and yes. actually maybe now I pair all this with with that case study for my students. Mm-hmm. So and I wanted to go because it's it's not. Uh, so that's the, the case study there. But in Malmo, there is a different I found this really interesting. There's a different mm-hmm. interpretation of gas or biogas. And maybe you could describe that.
1: Yeah. So uh, so once I did the Lynn case, I became curious because, as I said, people were at least a bit hesitant to the idea of accepting electric buses in Um, So I found Malmo as a case study where they were already in the process of uh, adopting electric buses in their bus fleet. So they had some, some lines underway. Uh, and I went there expecting to find a story of uh, similar controversy. And instead, all the actors I interviewed were basically like, oh, yeah, no, we, we all agree that electricity is the future we have no problem giving up the biogas. And so when I started to ask why, one of the reasons is that actually in Malmo, they already use biogas quite a lot for um, municipal heating and energy. So they don't really have the same attachment that they do in Linköping, where biogas has been almost like synonymous with the city buses. Rather, Uh they see biogas as a versatile fuel already. Um, And then it was other things like, as you mentioned, that natural gas uh, had much more of an impact in Malmö because Malmö sits right at the tip, uh, southern tip of Sweden, where it's connected to the international gas network that goes comes up from Denmark. So when I interviewed actors in Malmö, they didn't think the biogas was very sustainable because it was either partially natural gas or like, as they put it, it's natural gas they're putting in the buses anyway, Or it was Danish biogas, which they thought was less beneficial because I think uh, primarily because they use more energy crops for biogas in Denmark than in Sweden.
0: Oh, okay. So
1: uh, this like infrastructural connection had a huge impact on the way that they viewed the biogas. So it took away this sort of controversial idea that you're choosing between two sustainable fuels and instead made the biogas seem a lot less sustainable and the choice of electricity much easier to make.
0: But how? just uh, so much. Time. How like I'm really interested now in the buses and limpid, limpid, limping. Yeah, because I mean, uh, yeah. As I mentioned, also, yeah, you can use it for district heating and just burn it, and that's yeah. You know, people don't see it, but do you think that the now that we're talking about imaginaries? I think uh, what is the symbolic uh, role that that buses play in projecting? I don't know. Uh, a part of the energy system in people's lives. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think that my informants really got into that as well, that, that um, as they expressed, and that was my experience as well, like the buses really sort of drive home this, um, you know, this uh, resource loop that's happening in Um, that you, when you uh, get rid of your food waste, you have these nice green bags that say, um, you know, this is future biogas on them. And then when you get on the bus, you see on every bus uh, big like, you know, they have a, where you can put like um, advertisements and stuff. They put big signs saying this bus is driven by biogas. So you make this connection. Right. And I think that it's really important because uh, because imaginaries like they, they have so much to do with the public as well, because, of course, it's the uh, the politicians or the civil servants that are making the concrete decision of what fuel should go into the buses, but politicians are elected, right? It also comes down to how the public views, um, views the biogas. And I think that the buses were a key tool in making the public understand that biogas was something... Uh, you know, beneficial for the municipality, but also like the the company uh, Technik and It's very central to the municipality. It's their, one of their plants, which is not their biogas plant actually, but one of their energy plants is one of the first things you see when you get off of the train in Lynchirping. So it's uh-huh. like, um, it's a different relationship because it's also, it's a municipally owned company, uh, which is another reason why, uh, why Lin- the case in Lynchirping is so different than the case in Malmo. Because in Malmo, the the biogas was rather provided by a, a international gas company, gas and energy company.
0: So it's so kind of it have the same.
1: Yeah, I mean, so it didn't have the same like this is local, this is this is you know our municipality that's making this happen kind of feel.
0: Uh huh. So then, yeah. what what I'm gonna push you then on this, and then what huh? what can we learn then about um, getting social acceptance for like new technologies? Uh, and 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 actually, not just new technologies, but social practices, right? Because people yeah. have to recycle their bio waste. Uh, yeah. And what? How how can how can that be applied? What can we learn from that? Let me just throw it that way.
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's a really good question. I think that we can learn that um, visibility is key. Maybe is one of the lessons. Is that. Um, because, you know, to, to counteract that there was this ongoing rumor in Sweden, like, especially when I was studying, uh, my master's about 10 years ago, that there was no, there was no point in, um, in sorting your waste because all of it went to the same place anyway. I don't know if you've heard similar. Oh, no, definitely. I hear it right
0: here in Michigan. I just, we just had a discussion about it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, so, so, so you hear that kind of thing and then you as a consumer think, okay, like if that's the case, I'm going to do the easy thing. I'm just going to throw everything out anyway. Um, versus if you take like the Lynn chirping case where they put it right on the bag that this is going to be biogas. I mean, yeah, sure. You can also choose not to believe that, but it really puts it right in front of your face that this is there's gonna be a use of suiting out sorting out your food waste here um, because then it's gonna help you um, you know, get to work the next day when you take public transportation. So I think it's it's a lot of like making the consumer understand the impact of their choices because if people don't choose to sort their waste, then where's the biogas going to come from and how are we all going to get to work? Like, I mean, that's of course a, a gross oversimplification, but I think that that's, that's how a lot of people think. And that's kind of how imaginaries work, right? Yeah. That it's, it's about, it's a lot about this like intangible aspect that it's like, you can make logical argument for things, but logical arguments aren't always what get at the core of how people make their decisions
0: yeah it's emotional as well and it it kind of goes to like the point of like I don't know forest certification whatever some kind of certification process or uh, stamp of approval you know and that that consumers buy certain uh, Mm -hmm. products based on that or startup companies have a social angle or environmental angle to to appeal to this and then what I find so interesting then this is I mean yeah exactly they could be like what they do in Melmo it's all provided by a corporation and nobody sees what goes in to the, where the gas comes from or anything, but having this visibility, it's like, it's like a, just, I don't know, I, was, and I used to work in restaurants, but, you know, the kitchen was always hidden from everybody. And yeah. then nowadays, it's not that new, right? But everyone can see inside the kitchen and what's going on. And having that connection of where our resources uh, are coming from and how we use things is really mm-hmm. important then. Uh, especially when it comes to like adapting new habits and new technologies.
1: That was yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. I mean, but I, there's also so much irony in that as well, because for example, if you take the Malmo case, then when they're switching to electricity, it's the same company providing the electricity. Yes. So it's like, so it's, 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 I think it's not necessarily only that it's an international corporation. I think it's this idea that, one of the draws of biogas is this like local resource loop uh, sort of benefit. Um, whereas if you take the electric electrical system, like it's it's pretty national, it's pretty international anyway. So the way that people understand and, and think about their electricity pr- consumption is not the same.
0: Yes, and then let me uh, push you then. So so what does this mean for electricity production? I mean, then is this where like community solar projects or community wind projects actually play an important role because they connect communities with their energy source?
1: I mean, yeah, I think they absolutely could. I think like that's, that's really sort of outside of my expertise area, because when I was doing interviews, people talked so much about the national electricity system. Um, And then in, so I mean, that's, that was a huge uh, impact on the case that I used, right? Because in Sweden, we have 90% renewable energy. I put renewable in quotes because quite a lot of it is nuclear, but um, anyway, non-fossil based energy. Um, And so I think that 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 also has a big impact on people. But I think that, I mean, I think absolutely it would have a positive impact if people felt like, oh, the solar panels on my house rather are fueling the bus that I'm taking to work. Um, or I mean, probably like quite a lot of people who have electric cars do that. Maybe their solar panels fuel their electric cars. Um, but that's just at least in the scheme of the research that I did, it's not really how people think about the electrical system. Um, if anything, they think of, they, they brought in some of the negativity of the fact that it's international and that even if we have 90% renewable, again, quotes, um, electricity in Sweden that some of the electricity could come from coal p- plants in Poland or whatever. Um, yeah, so interesting. I think it's, yeah. It's a perception thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it, it just, I, I think goes to the heart and like the power that, the, you know, lo- what local production or local connect- connections can do in the energy mm-hmm. system, which yeah, some places like uh, it's made and other places it's not. And yeah. when it's so abstract, people are not connecting. Then they don't kind of care, or mm-hmm. they don't see that benefit uh, locally. Yeah. Um, and uh, I was just gonna move on a little bit. Um, well, I, I guess we're actually going through all the questions that I had about <laughs> about, but but we're addressing it like, why are new technologies and energy projects dependent on social perspectives? Uh, I I think we covered that, but I was just maybe uh, to expand that out a bit. Um, is what, what does this say about maybe, um, the mix between policies and maybe we can just talk about electric cars and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, is, you know, how much is it government incentives for Mm -hmm. electric vehicles? And then how much is it like the social acceptance or what's trendy? Uh Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a really good point because I think that this, uh, this imaginary that, that came out through my research, like it, it's very much a case for people buying electric cars, right? Or at least, or at least for municipalities going out and getting subsidies and buying electric buses because they very much view this as the future. But I think that, uh, I think that you can, you can make some comparisons. Um, for example, if you go back to the biogas example, That when biogas became popular in Sweden, there was also interest uh, and some expectation that consumers would go out and buy biogas cars because suddenly there'd be this supply of biogas that you could also use to just fuel your personal car. Um, And I had some colleagues who did some research on why this never happened. And one of the things that they came up with was the fact that the only cars you could, there was a real limit in terms of biogas cars you could buy. And a lot of the ones that you could buy were a bit like a dumpy. Okay. <laughs> so yes. if you compare it then to electric vehicles where there's a lot of like, since so many, uh, so many producers are creating newer, faster, faster charging, longer range electric vehicles, that it really inspires better consumer choice.
0: Yeah. And- because
1: it is partially it is partially government subsidi- subsidies because they help offset the fact that electric vehicles are still more expensive but I think that also it's it's the fact that these vehicles are becoming desirable to drive they have more sort of social weight associated with them since the advent of the ta- the Tesla <laughs> yes. that that it's no longer like it's not like it was when people were considering buying biogas cars and maybe they only had Slightly ugly models versus now, it's like you know, if you make a lot of money and you want a cool car, you can go buy a Tesla and get a subsidy for
0: it. And it's almost a status drive symbol. practically
1: for free, yeah. Absolutely. It's
0: absolutely a status symbol, I think. Uh-huh. So this yeah. shift is shift is there because they're still quite expensive, right? I mean, yeah. the, the cost is up front rather than over time with yeah. the fossil fuels. And then you you just see basically the car companies coming in after Tesla has made it sexy. Yeah. Uh and, and then yeah, and then doing their part. But otherwise, I mean, because it's a reconfiguration of their own internal combustion engine technologies. Mm-hmm. So they didn't want to want to do it, but now but now they're being forced. I was just wondering, um, what about like the social side of this? I mean, mm-hmm. so you, like we have this push for, and Sweden's, uh, we, we could call it a socialist country. It's so funny being in America. You yeah. know, people are like, Oh, those socialists, those yeah. communists, you they're know, are horrible. We don't want any of that over here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and the life in Sweden is pretty, pretty comfortable. So, um, how, how is that playing out or what is the dialogue if there is one about like um, lower income people affording, mm. I don't know, some sustainable, or I mean, are, everyone's just expected to take public transport. How, how, how does that go? Yeah,
1: there's absolutely, that's a big part of the discussion. Um, I would say as much in terms of where people live as, as their income levels that, um, I mean, cause that's, that's definitely an argument, for example, against um heavily taxing fossil fuels, right? Is that if you heavily tax fossil fuels, people who have older, higher, uh, higher fuel burning cars, they can't afford to get to work anymore because they can't afford the new costs. Um, But it's also it's a social question from a urban rural perspective as well. Because one of the things that I learned when I was going out interviewing people in public transport for my thesis, was that one of the places where they even making cuts that was quite controversial is in um rural uh rural access so how many routes there were to rural areas and if if you want to try and enforce that people should take public transportation instead of driving their own cars they need to have access to public transportation right like that needs to be a viable alternative for them um so i mean there's absolutely Is that the
0: ice cream truck? <laughs> yeah,
1: that's the ice cream truck.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, electric or is it petrol? No
1: pretty sure it's a petrol one but um <laughs> okay. yeah so you can recognize that sound anywhere <laughs> <But> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah exactly okay sorry sorry so so we know that there's no they don't have electric uh yeah ice cream trucks but this rural urban divide then that's yeah what we were talking about. so
1: that becomes a big issue as well because then also like if if you want to talk about this then electrified future, uh, you know, it's, it's harder, you can't drive, uh, it's harder to drive electric buses on rural routes, um, which is one of the, one of the ways the outlets that has been discussed for biogas then, right? Is that then maybe, okay, we put biogas, um, in our, uh, like regional routes instead, the ones that go between cities. Um, but that came up with an interesting dilemma for the social side of things because the, uh, with my work in Lynchherping, the public transport company, they have a specific kind of bus that they always drive on their rural routes. Uh, right. Uh-huh. I mean, if you if you've ridden a lot of public transport buses, maybe you've had this experience yeah. that in the cities, they tend to look more like trams, they have more doors and stuff, versus between cities, they're more like uh, like long haul buses, like with more seats. Yeah. Um, that that you can't do those as compressed gas buses because the tanks are too big. Oh. So you can't do these like double decker buses with, <laughs> so those are the, the few buses that they had the public transport agency that weren't biogas buses because you couldn't get the, the big tanks on top that you need to hold the volume of gas. Yeah. Um, so it's a bit of like a complicated thing that it's like, even if you electrify city buses, it's harder to electrify those buses. And then if you want to encourage people to switch to electric cars, range, of course, is a bigger issue if you live further outside of town um yes that's so interesting divide is like it's a big issue for sure
0: yeah. I mean, but, but that's a very, very good example of, uh, and actually it's great that you you came out, you found that out in your research because mm-hmm. it really indicates when you get down into these issues, right. Of where does this technology work and where does it not work? And it's exactly this type of thing. Well, for that type of bus, it, it can't really work or it's not yeah. developed enough, the technology yeah. so that we, we got to stick with this older system. I don't know, maybe yeah. diesel or something. Right. But, but, uh, And so over time, that's, that's why, I mean, so, so the goal is there's a big 2030 goal in Sweden Mm -hmm. and you're you're kind of doubtful of that. What what is the 2030 goal and why may they not reach it?
1: Yeah. I mean, so the 2030 goal, they sort of like rolled it back a bit since they introduced it. Um, It is technically to be fossil fuel independent um, for domestic transport by 2030. So independent is key because that means, for example, like if you have hybrid cars or these kinds of things that they can count as uh, independent because they can drive not on fossil fuels. Okay. Um, I'm skeptical because 2030 is now less than 10 years away. There's a lot of vehicles on the road now that will still be on the road in 2030. Uh, it's my opinion that also, I mean, because it's it's not just a matter like it's a supply question as well. Right. And, and I mean, Sweden has made great strides. We have 22 percent biofuels in our uh, like in our uh, road transport fleet, which is like really, really high. Um, and if you take public transport, it's much better. Like the public transport fleet, I think, it, is 86 percent or so. Wow biofuels. So I mean, there's, there's a lot of progress in the right direction, but it's just, there's a lot of barriers to sort of, you know, these things go much more slowly than you might hope that they do. But um, I also kind of wanted to go back to what you're saying about the like rural urban divide. And, and to me, that really sort of highlights one of the most interesting things that I think I learned in this thesis and, and why I think this kind of research is important is because it really highlights the fact that there's not like there's not a good solution that's works in 100 percent of cases, right? That that probably our trans our transition to a renewable uh, energy system, it's going to be quite piecemeal where we're trying to like fit together all the different fuels and all the different applications. Meanwhile, also working very heavily with um, energy efficiency, right? Yes. Um. And so I just think that that this to me this project was so interesting because the fact that I was then looking at uh, a case where it was a renewable to renewable transition, it highlighted the fact that, that it's not like, it's not like this uh straightforward pathway and then we're done. It's rather a lot of like interchanging in the meantime and trying to find which solution fits what best in the, be- in each place.
0: Yeah. 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 Right. I and mean, it's yeah. the evolution of technology itself, certain yeah. parts of it become more efficient. And then yeah. do, do you, re- what do you do with the older technology that it may not be that old, right? It's only 10 years old or something, uh, yeah. but something is even cheaper now. And how, how does it change over time? But I think yeah. your example of how the industry is adapting, like producing LPG or something is actually a really good example mm-hmm. of, of this change over time. So it's Yeah. Not, mm-
1: well, and I was going to say that's, that's one reason why, um, why it also wasn't interesting to take, uh, transport buses, public transport buses as a case study, because those typically only have like a 10 year life in anyway. Um, so, so it, I think that it sort of provided some interesting lessons that could potentially be applied to the wider transport fleet. Yes. Yeah. Sorry,
0: When you say that, and I say in Hungary, sometimes it's thirty or fifty years. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Public transport, Fair. but no, no, they're they're making good strides. But yeah, uh, yeah it depends. Um, I wanted to maybe just uh, switch it with a few few more questions on sure. teaching and learning. And I, so you're doing teaching now. You're still you're still teaching. And yeah. how do you teach? how do you bring in imaginaries or how do you bring in your research into into the things you're teaching?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I've actually never used the theoretical concept of imaginaries (laughs) in my teaching. Yeah. Um, just because it's not that central to what we want our students to learn. Uh, but it's come out quite a lot anyway. Like the, the case material was really helpful in my previous position. I did much more teaching for, uh, like I- including in a course called the social perspectives of energy systems. Oh. So then it was quite quite an interesting example to bring up for those students. Now my students, uh, I work at the agricultural U- agricultural university, so some of my students are in fact uh, agriculture students, um, or most of them are studying uh, environmental communication. So then we talk a-, a whole lot about narratives. We talk a whole lot about discourses. And and to me, those are just an alternative way of talking about imaginaries with the, with the caveat that they're not as often framed around our ideas of the future. But of course, when you're talking about uh, sustainability discourses, a lot of times the, the future is there, even if we're not necessarily talking about our individual visions of it.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's interesting. So for agriculture, which is definitely, you know, uh, well, it's super important for the future yeah. with food, with energy. How uh, What what are some of the key messages that you kind of, you need to deliver, you feel you need to deliver to agricultural students?
1: Um, I mean, so I take in, teach in a very specific class. So uh-huh. it tends to be more like communication and project uh, management oriented. Um, I mean, so then I think it's like, it's an interesting experience for us to have the opportunity to both sort of share some of our message in terms of how discourses are relevant for sustainability transitions. Um, how like, for example, systems perspectives and and, like seeing the broader picture are important. Um, but it's also been a really interesting learning opportunity for me because, uh, you know, the, the whole university, despite being an agricultural or, perhaps because it's an agricultural university, is very sustainability-oriented. So I have some really great conversations with those students, particularly when it comes to the sustainable food system, because they have very strong opinions on that. Um, but I mean, I think it's also interesting because, uh, because also the fact that that course is interdisciplinary uh, across the different agricultural focuses um that they they also learn from each other about how to see this as a, a whole picture and how to understand the sustainability from more of like a a national global level uh whereas some of them at least work on more of a like individual um sort of systems level
0: okay okay wow but it's so practical at least at least in in, yeah. in in my mind it would seem like these are people actually that will that are probably with a lot of experience and will be doing things in the future with yeah like I don't know, real earth stuff. So yeah,
1: it's so interesting to, I mean, cause I don't have that background. I've really enjoyed learning from them. Uh, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Me too. Maybe I'll become a farmer. Right. That's, yeah, I don't know, my next career. Yeah. Okay, Amelia, Hello. I I uh I just want to thank you so much for uh, a uh, not just coming on today, but your research area and spending so many years on your PhD. Because I really think I really think this was like worthwhile research project, and you really delivered like a really good result. So thank you.
1: Well, thank
0: you. That's what everyone wants to hear, right? Yeah, no, I I, I was really uh, excited about reading it. So I'm I'm, I'm sure my students will be reading it as well. So, okay. Thank you very much, Amelia. Thank you. Take
1: care.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the My Energy 2050 podcast. Please follow the My Energy 2050 podcast on iTunes or Stitcher so that you can automatically get updated with each new episode. If you like this episode and feel others can benefit from the information, please share it on social media. You can contact me to provide feedback or suggestions on Twitter at MyEnergy2050 or on LinkedIn.